Today we have Swapnil Agarwal on the show. Swapnil started investing in multifamily in 2013 with a 37-unit, $1.3 million property. Fast forward to today and Swapnil's company, Nitya Capital, has grown to over 20,000 units and over $2 billion in assets under management. Swapnil has a positive growth mindset, and his story is about overcoming challenges through hard work, dedication, creativity, persistence, and patience, things anyone can do if they put their mind to it. Listen as he shares his journey from humble beginnings to becoming one of the most successful real estate investing entrepreneurs today. Before we jump into the intro, don't take a chance on missing out on a future episode to learn from proven seasoned investors. Go to Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe, and please select the five-star review. Thank you. We are currently at 292 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we are shooting to get to the 300 mark. We are so close. Thank you for stepping up. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing. Be introduced to the players that are getting it done and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Swapnil Agarval before we start the show. Swapnil lives in the Houston area. His background is in the investment banking and private equity space. He's from a small town in India and actually came to the U.S. at the age of 15 years old. He and his company have experienced massive growth from 37 units in 2013 to over 20 thousand units and two billion dollars in assets today. Swapnil has a drive for excellence in everything he does. Now on to the show. Hello everyone. Today we have a very special treat. We've got Swapnil Agarval here with us. Swapnil, appreciate you coming on the show. Awesome and thank you. Thank you. It's an honor being here. Absolutely. So just a little bit about how I know Swapnil. So this is the first time I've actually talked to him, but I've had a number of other people in the multifamily world come to me and tell me, you know what? You got to have Swapnil on the show, man. This guy is just killing it. And I'm telling you listeners, if you don't know him, this is going to be a very interesting conversation because we brought in the big guns today. So Swapnil, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate the introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see for sure. Hey, uh, could you just start by sharing with, with the listeners how many properties, how many units you guys are invested in? Yeah, I think approximately 63 assets today for about 20,000 units. That was 63 properties for 20,000 units. Guys and girls, this guy manages over $2 billion, if I have it correctly, 
and assets under management. Yes, sir. That's crazy. Yes, sir. So the questions I think are a little different that I ask you than somebody that has a thousand or 2000 units. Um, you know, the first thing I kind of want to go to is, is mindset. You know, how, how do you even think to yourself that I could get a billion or $2 billion on, under assets under management? And look, when I ask people, other people, what their stretch goal is, they tell me, I want to have a billion dollars. I want to be like swap meal. <laughs> so how do you get that mindset? No, I think you asked a great question. I think mindset is so key. And you know, when you think of, when you talk about mindset or what I, when I think about my mindset to myself, it's not really that I'm thinking about a number, whether it's a billion, two billion, five. Yeah, maybe I think about hundred billion sometimes. So I want to be a hundred billion. But other than that, it's trying to keep that mindset in a positive frame more often than it goes in the negative zone. Because, you know, reality is we're all are humans. And as human, you're going to have mental struggles just like everybody else, whether you have Two billion, or whether you have two million, or whether you have two dollars in your pocket, right? Everyone is gonna go through that struggle in their mind, whether it's related to their business, their personal, their career aspirations, or their business aspirations, or where they want to be in life, or where they are right now, the frustrations. So, what I try to do personally is try to keep my mind in. It's almost like you know, you're playing playing a game of offense and defense. I've tried to be in the offense more than defense, so which means I try to be more positive often than not. And that takes a lot of work. I mean, there are days where you just you're just like, what are you doing? What's my purpose in this world? I mean, so what if I have you know, two the two billion or sixty three assets? So that won't change, right? For your listeners or anybody for yourself. Uh, so I mean, I I try to try to keep my mindset where I'm in a zone where I'm more productive. I try to keep my mind in a zone where I'm being efficient with my time. I try to keep my mindset in a zone where I am being respectful of, uh, of, of times. I'm trying to, and also in the mindset, I'm trying to be creative, right? Trying to be creative in my given field. Again, real estate is not a difficult business, a very, I would say, uh, you know, ease relatively easy. It's not rocket science, right? I mean, you have apartments, people pay rent, you pay your expenses and give the distributions in terms of access cash flow, right? I mean, that's basically it. Uh, but how do you get creative? How do you get creative so you can maximize not only returns for your investors, but only maximize professional growth for your employees, but and also give your tenants that experience that everyone deserves when they live in, in an apartment complex. I think that you said a lot of good things there. I think, um, you know, it, you don't really think of real estate as being creative, right? But if, if, you know, I'm sure you've heard of Sam Zell. I read his book and one of the things he says in the book and is, you know, that he's very creative and that he always looks at, um, he, he finds that he was successful because a lot of people weren't able to figure out a way to make a deal work. And he was able to figure out how to make it work. And that's where his creativity came in. And he's probably the number one real estate guy out there, you know? And um, 
So that's interesting to hear him say that. And then I hear you say the same thing. So that, that's very cool. Um, the other thing is, you know, in terms of mindset is, and you said it again, it doesn't matter if you have $2 in your pocket or if you $2 million of assets or $2 billion, you know, learning how to control your mind, you know, and not let that negativity get in, in the way is, yeah. is critical. Um, so with that, in today's market, we're in low, 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 low interest rates. Look, I'm seeing a lot of large deals come across the desk, right? Large portfolio deals. Um, some people are like, man, interest rates are super low and we're at tail end and I'm, I'm cashing in and I'm getting out. And other people are like, you know what? We're going to have inflation and real estate is a good place to be. And I'm going to continue buying. So I want to hear your perspective on that. I think both are right perspective. I think it just depends on, do you feel comfortable buying in an environment at three cap rate and borrowing at three and a half or more, knowing that your interest rate is going to go up? Do you feel confident that your rent growth will outpace your mortgage or your so? For me, I'm a net seller in today's market. Now, having said that, I have a portfolio of 12 assets I'm selling in Houston, but then I'm under contract on like 2,500 unit portfolio in Dallas and buying buying an asset, pretty large asset in Denver, Colorado. Uh, so net, net, net seller, but again, being very opportunistic because selling a portfolio at three and a quarter, three and a half cap rate, but buying a portfolio at four and a half or above cap rate, I'm trading in that differential and I'm happy with that all day long. So it's just, again, being creative, thinking about things the way nobody else usually would think about. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, talk about how you, so your company is, is called Nitya Capital. Did I pronounce that right? That's right. Um, so talk to me about, you know, what make other than size, you know, what makes you guys different? What's, what's your special sauce? Yeah. I think the biggest difference between our firm and any other firm is, in my mind, I mean, again, it might not translate to everybody, but in my mind, it's, it's we are so very entrepreneurial. I'm very entrepreneurial, right? I am of the mindset where their limits are only in your mind. Otherwise, there's no limits. So why can't we underwrite deals and Perth, Australia, and Cabo, Mexico, why do we have to do these multifamily deals in Texas all the time, right? So very, very opportunistic, very entrepreneurial, very creative, very numbers-driven, at least I am personally. I'm very mathematical, very financial structuring-driven. And I think people miss that aspect. I mean, you'll see a lot of people in today's day and age where they think buying apartments is the flavor of the, the time, right? And it's easy. You can leverage it. kind of is, right? Multifamily yeah. and industrial are both hot, hot sectors. Yeah. I mean, look, especially for multifamily, because you can borrow 80% leverage today at three and a half. You got to raise 20% equity. So all of a sudden you're buying a $30 million deal. You got to raise five, $6 million. Well, I can do that, right? Everybody is syndicating now. But I think they don't appreciate how hard it is to manage these assets. They don't appreciate 
the working capital issues that you face on a daily basis, spending money for rehabs, waiting for six months for lenders to fund that draw, or or just managing expectations of your investors. It's just a tedious business. It's it's almost like a thankless job, in a way where. I mean, once you're not until you until you give them their check at the yeah, end, yeah. the investors yeah. check, then then they're thankful, right? You're giving them nice returns. Yeah. Well, not even thankful. That's like okay, that's you're supposed to do that. That's oh, not that's even you're expected. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like baked in the stock price, right? They call it. So, uh, but you know, I think uh, so. Being entrepreneurial, I think the limits are only in our minds, right? And no, having done what I've done, we've done, and having the experience of running these assets and selling and buying and refinancing, it's a difficult business. I mean, your major expenses in the property is what? Your property taxes, your insurance, utilities, payroll. These are fixed expenses. You can manipulate, you can change around your last 5, 10% and your R&M and, 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 you know, some of those costs. But And then your income growth. Your income growth is not as easy what people say the value add play, right? They said, okay, but put in eight grand a door, raise the rents by $150. Sounds great on paper. It's just impossible for this type of tenant base to achieve that because they're very price conscious, right? So I, I'd say that one few things that sets us apart from any other firm is it's just a drive for excellence for us drive for excellence and drive to maximize investors' return. I mean, that's really what drives me. And that's why we, you know, I think a more important fact than the AUM that you mentioned early on is, is our track record of selling 1.2 billion worth of deals and achieving a 22% net IRR for investors, right? 22%, I think that's, that's yeah, amazing. I think that's probably the bigger stat than anything else. <laughs> it, it's, it's amazing. It really is. Hey, um, you you know talked about being entrepreneurial and opportunistic, and you you're heavy heavy in the multifamily space. But looking at your background, you also have assets in other real estate categories as well. Um, when I think of what has transpired in you know the the whole COVID uh, downturn, you know what has been hit more is hospitality and office and retail. So, you know, going forward, do you see playing, being opportunistic in those areas or do you see kind of still staying, you know, more heavily weighted in the multifamily world? No, no, absolutely, man. I mean, just to give you an example of a story that, that your listeners like to hear is yeah. last year, we bought about 300 million worth of assets during the COVID year. And out of 300, 130 million were commercial office assets in suburban Houston market, right? So now you talk about, uh, you know, people following the herd mentality. I am a complete opposite mindset, right? I'll do every, anything and everything that other people are not doing. So buying an office building in the worst time in Houston and oil prices are negative 35 or 37. I think that... Uh, and then it's you, th- you thrive on people telling you you're crazy. Yes, yes. yes I love it. <laughs> so, what's the play on those office buildings? Is it is it, um, you know, buy at a, at a, at a- no look at these. I mean, look, we do our analysis, right? We we are contrarians, but we do our analysis. Of, okay, we bought almost what 
130 million. So that's about million square foot of office space last year. Average cap rate we bought it for was 9.8 cap rate at 130 bucks a foot, where your replacement value is over 500 bucks a foot. And you're borrowing at one deal 3%, the other is 4%. So you're getting five, 600 basis differential where the, the in place, this is in place going in cap rate of over nine and a half. At, 82, 83% average occupancy. So you not only have occupancy upside, you have rent upside, and you're going in basis is so strong that you have a lot of room uh, for error, right? So if a deal, you know, you know, since last year, we've done 16% cash on cash on those deals, I would take that all day long. I can't find any asset in multifamily that can give me half of that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. What about um, taking office and retrofitting it into multifamily? You know, it sounds great in, 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 you know, in theory, but I just, I don't think we've come close to trying to get there, to be honest. And again, for me, the, the stage I, the, where I sit now, for me, it's about, okay, who could be a champion of something like you said? So if some partner operator comes like, I'm expert in converting office into multi or multifamily or vice versa, whatever it is. Great. I'll support, I'll back that person or that. Anything. So for me, I see myself as not an expert in everything, but I can, I can say that I can, I'm not an expert, but I'm a good judge of people, good judge of people's cap capabilities and what they can achieve. And that's what led me to success, to be honest so far. No, that's, that's important for listeners. I mean, if, I've had a lot of people on that have been successful, not to your, your level, but you know, the, there's a theme that goes around over and over and over again is, you know, if you wanted to learn something is go find somebody that's already done it and yeah. then learn from them. And yeah. here you are, and you know, you've, you've got $2 billion in assets yeah. under management, but yet you're still like, Hey, look, if I'm going to go do something that I haven't done before, I want to. I want to align myself with somebody who's an expert in doing that. And then I'll partner with, I'll partner with that guy and move, move forward. And, and then I'll learn. Yes. And I'm happy to share. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, yeah. In my mind, it's never about economics or profitability. I think about it probably the last thing for me, it's about the people I'm going to work with. And, and the opportunity itself, the qualitative part comes first for me. Money-wise, you know, there's enough for everyone to make. Not greedy at all. Not trying to maximize economics. I've been blessed with so much already. So it's about doing good things, spreading greatness, and and doing things the right way and being creative, right? Just it's the satisfaction when you get when you make something happen and nobody else saw it coming. Yeah, I mean, I I think for me. That where I get charged up the most is doing something I haven't done before. Right. And like, right. you know, you don't know how it's going to turn out, but you're trying to figure it out and, and you just keep raising the bar, you know? So yeah. hey, how did you even get into the business and when did you get into business? Yeah. You know, I, I was, uh, I come from, uh, uh, investment banking, private equity background. So before I started Nitya, I was, uh, I was in a private equity real estate firm for about eight plus years. Okay. And finally, I've had enough of uh, working in corporate world. I wanted to do something on my own. And this is what I came about of it. And I didn't know how, what and what to buy. 
I found a property 37 unit apartment complex on LoopNet in 2013. Did you really? It was yeah, 1.3 million. I got somehow a million dollar loan after getting my friend to co-sign it because I had nowhere close to the net worth needed to get that loan. And then I had to raise 300,000 and I was planning to put all my savings in that one deal, but I put together a presentation, showed it to a few friends and they all wanted to invest 50,000 each. And that's how Nithya Capital got started. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. I mean, listeners think about that. Like I didn't know your backstory. <laughs> I just knew you were managing $2 billion in assets, but you know, I say it over and over again, everybody starts with one, their first investment property, yeah. whether it's buying a house or a duplex or, you know, for you it was 37 units, 1.3 million. Yeah. It was only a $300,000 equity raise. That's and that's what got the ball rolling. In 2013, it's not like you've been in it for 20, 30 years. I mean, seven years, eight years, you know, seven, eight years. Holy cow. That's crazy. So very good run, my man. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, um, talk about vertical integration. You, you guys, you know, as you've grown, you've, you've uh, taken the company into other areas as well. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, look, we, I think the, the biggest uh, challenge that I saw when I got in this business, and I was in private equity before wearing a, you know, white collar job and, you know, placing capital and, just like any other financial institution does. And what I saw was a lack of operating partners, a lack of par operating partners who are sophisticated to understand the financial terms in the world and also be hands-on in terms of, you know, the actual property management side. And, and to be honest, I didn't find any single operator who's good at both. So I said, let me start by doing that myself. So bought the first property, 37 units, bought the second property, 76 units, and the third property was in Houston, 160 units. And I, I sat at the property myself. I collected rents from a very tough tenant base. I did the monthly financials for my investors. I prepared the company agreement for, for legal and asked for wires from my investors. And I tracked those wires. I tracked those signatures. I mean, literally, I was doing everything. And that's how you learn. And that was the beginning of the property management arm after that. We do our own rehabs as well. The truth is, it's a difficult business. Property management is a very difficult business. Almost like, again, like I said, thankless job. You are not really making a lot of money doing property management, but you're doing it so you can ensure the success of the property you bought because you're a fiduciary to your LPs, right? So that's how the vertical integration came. So we manage all our properties ourselves. We don't do any third-party management so far. And... We like to be in control because that's really my value add, right? If I'm going to my investors and I'm pitching them a deal on paper, a very nice PowerPoint presentation, what is my value add, right? I mean, I'm, am I just sourcing the deal and putting a presentation together? Because there's anybody who can do that. But for me, the value add is buying it and operating it and then selling it and providing good returns. And the only way I can do that with a high regard of, con you know, high level of conscious with me and saying that, high level of confidence that I can do it is to have my own property management. Sure. So a few things with that one, one, I mean, part of the value add, what you, you're bringing to the table too, is, is a lot of the LPs, they look, they're busy doing their own, their own thing. And they're, 
They've got capital. They, they're relying on you to pick the right deals, yep. you know, to, to source the right deals. Now, part of your success in that execution is the property management, you know, so you're, you're taking that back in. So you have control over that. Yeah. Um, but you also did something a little different than a lot of syndicators I've talked to a lot, a lot say use third party till you get to about a thousand units and then you've got scale to, you know, bring it in house. You started out doing it yourself right from the get go and you learned ground up, um, you know, both sides of the business. Awesome. Um, and the name of the property management company, Kaya property management. Okay. But it's, it's all in-house. It's not, you don't do any third party. That is correct. How do you look at when you're, when you're buying deals, how do you look at mitigating risk? You know, it's almost impossible to eliminate every risk because. Absolutely. It wouldn't be an investment, right? If it was guaranteed, right? It, well, especially when you're buying 60s, 70s, 80s apartment complex in Houston, right? Or Dallas, where there's no shortage of problems that come with old vintage assets. But then on top, you layer in once in a lifetime events like hurricane that happened two or three years ago. Then you have COVID and then you have uh, Texas freeze. I mean, how do you mitigate against that? Right. <laughs> right. But, you know, look, right. Some of the, some of those you yeah. can't, you know, um, one one factor that I think about that, you know, is important that I think some syndicators overlook is, is matching the debt to to the deal and, you know, um, knowing what type of debt to put on. You know, you could get in. I've seen some syndicators where, hey, they can sell right now at attractive prices, but they're they have yield maintenance. They, you know, they have a rate that's a 150 basis point higher. And they're stuck because they have such a high prepayment penalty. Yeah, one of the biggest, yeah, one of the most important steps we took in our history. We never, I never fixed any loans, right? You never, fi- so you're all floating. Every time, always been floating, unless the institution made us fix because of that particular institution's uh, investment criteria, which we did on a couple of portfolios. But majority of our assets are floating rate debts, and that's why we've been so you know, nimble and flexible in terms of what we need to do at any given point in time. It just gives you that flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, agency floating or, or uh, oh, bank? Agency bridge. I mean, agencies traditionally, but in this today's day and age, you're getting bridge at low threes at 80% cost. I mean, why would you not do that? Right. And what about, uh, do you focus on buying caps on, on that floating? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So where did you grow up? What was, what was your upbringing like? I grew up in a small town in India. Uh, and I came here to this country in 1996. As a young, uh, 15-year-old at that time, as an immigrant, started my high school here. And uh, you know, look, when I grew up in India and I uh, was thinking about America, I was, my dream was to go to America because I thought America is the greatest country. It still is. I still believe that. But I thought there's so much happiness. There's no troubles. Everyone is rich. Even the maid comes in, even the maid comes in a car. You know? that, that's great. That's you great. Know, coming here, and right, it was a kind of uh, open your, you 
you get a shock and you see the challenges you have to face as an immigrant. So my, uh, you know, my, my job to take me through college was, you know, passing out pizza flyers and the same apartment complexes that we own today, working at a mall and a candy store. I worked at a financial consultant office, making cold calls, inviting people to financial seminars. That's how I paid through my college, went to UT, and then uh, I've always been interested in finance and economics, so I did finance there and was lucky to land an investment banking job. So I did that for three years, and I then transitioned to real estate private equity world. I was in Hong Kong for eight years. Oh, wow. And then came back here in 13 and started Nitya Capital. Awesome. Um, Brothers, sisters? Only child. Only child. Okay. And parents, were are they entrepreneurial? Yes, parents. My dad, when he came to America, when we all came together in 96, my dad ran a small liquor store all his life till he just recently sold. I made him sell it. And you made him sell it. Yeah. I mean, look, at the, you know, I worked at the store growing up all the time. So pretty. So that's where the entrepreneurial urge started. My mom worked at a daycare. Uh, and then later on, she joined my dad in running the store. But yes, been an entrepreneur, been uh, different sort of entrepreneur. And I was telling my dad, why don't we all, why don't you guys just replicate and multiply the liquor stores? And, you know, he could never understand that concept. Well, if I'm not there, how can I ensure that the store will be successful? And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to buy not one apartment complex, but multiple of them. Yeah. So, I mean, you took something that you saw your, your dad was successful with, but then you put your own slant on it. Yes. Where, where, where did, in the U S did you grow up? Houston. Was it, it was in Houston. Okay. So your family's still there. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. And when you were growing up, did you ever think that you were, look, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to be a rock star. Yeah. You know, to be honest, to be very honest, I always believed that. And it's so funny you mentioned, I'll give you a story again, another story. I had my uh, calculus class uh, teacher from high school uh, came and my partner Vivek, he's also from the same high school. And she came and she brought, she brought a journal that she made everyone write on the last day of class in high school in 1999. She gave me my journal and you'll be surprised, I'll send it to you. The last four lines were, uh, he said, what's your future plan? So my future plans was work, it, work, get a job, save some money, start a company, have stock in the stock exchange, uh, get rich, give all the money back to the underprivileged or the people who need it and retire at 45. So teachers are <laughs> you're, you're ahead by five years. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. I asked that question because... Look, I, you know, it goes back to your, the mindset discussion early on, you know, for the listeners benefit, I think that's the first step in anything is that you actually have to believe that you can accomplish it. And then you yeah. have to make a decision to, to actually take action, to go after it. Because, yeah. um, you know, some people, they, I don't know why, but they, they have that negative talk in their head and that tells them that they're not worthy. It's for somebody else. They, you know, somebody else can do it, but like, so I think it's important for people to, to hear that. Like, look, way before any of the financial rewards come, it starts in your head that you, you believe that you could actually do it. Absolutely. So why, why do you keep doing it? Uh, it's the passion. 
Passion, good. Very, yeah, passion, very passionate. And if I don't do this, what else would I do, right? I mean, <laughs> that you know what? I mean that that says a lot because you could go, you know, go buy a small island and like, you know, or go go sit. But and then do what? you know, exactly. Like some people, they say to me, like, oh, I want to get this, and then I'm gonna retire. I'm like, that's that's when you go downhill, man. It's like when you retire. And you don't have, you're not working your mind anymore and you're not. Yeah. If your mind is not being stimulated, right? Yeah. You're not contributing back to society. I mean, that's when you start to see people kind of fall away. Um, So I I think that that's a smart approach. I mean, yeah. I mean, at some point in this world, whether it be through real estate or, you know, buying and building companies and selling them and at some point, you know, not everybody's like this, but you know, in some, at some point it's not really going to change your lifestyle that much, you know, to go from no. $2 billion in assets under management to five or 10, but you know, you're helping a lot of people along the way, you know, uh, there yeah. may be somebody that listens to this conversation that, you know, if, even if it's just one person that changes, makes a decision to change their life, you know, if you were sitting on the beach, not given back, they would never learn from that. So I applaud you. Yeah. And then look, there's so many, yeah, there's so many stakeholders, right? In their business, you have investors, employees, thousands of tenants. I mean, look, for me, really, the reason I started this business is to uplift people's living conditions because I grew up in the same apartment complex and just providing a nice, clean, safe place to live. It means a lot to families, the immigrants, the refugees. And, and, you know, these people are not, you know, the most sophisticated or have access to the best healthcare or doctors or lawyers. So we can play our part. So last week we inaugurated, you know, a hundred percent free healthcare clinic for all public. You, you, what you say that again? What, what did you do? So through our foundation called Cardiac Cares, we opened up a free healthcare clinic. In Houston? Right. In Houston. Anybody that wants to go can just show up? Anybody that wants to go can show up. Yes. Wow. That's, that's huge. So we do a lot of those things through our foundation. You know, this year, last year during COVID, I don't know if you read, but we had announced our own private $4 million rental assistance fund for our own ten- for this is for our tenants who lost their jobs. So we've deployed a significant portion of that money. And, and you know, we do a lot of stuff. We give education and we, we employ a lot of these people. So just like you rightly said, if I decide not to do this, a world will not be better off by me not doing that, right? I need to do it because if I can inspire one person, if one person says, look, this guy can do it, why can't I do it? An immigrant from India who didn't even become a U.S. citizen a few years ago can employ so many people and make an impact in this world. That's all we are here for. Yeah, that's huge. Hey, talk about like when you were in India and you had this vision of America and you didn't use these terms, but I'm thinking that you were thinking it was, you know, the land of opportunity. You come here and look, you're, you saw challenges, but you, you made it, you know, and successfully uh, financially. And I've met a lot of other people that came over with next to nothing, you know, and, and did it. And then I, I know people that grew up here that feel like, you know, there's no opportunity. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk to that. Like, what 
what was your view before coming? And why do you think that some people that, you know, come with nothing, find that opportunity and some people that grow up, you know, and maybe a, a better class neighborhood just wants it given to them versus going and searching it out. Yeah, you know, I, I had that that vision when I was in India that America is a land of opportunities and I still believe America is the greatest country in the world. I don't think in any other part of the world someone like me can achieve what I've achieved in America, anywhere else. Because unless you have political backing or financial strength, I mean, for me to start from this and being here, it's not possible in many other countries. And not to say that it's not difficult. Yes, country has many challenges. There's things that we need to improve, like healthcare is inefficient, immigration system is a mess. There's a lot of lot of you know inefficiencies that for me, as a private enterprise, can resolve it. And that's why America is the greatest country because it's all driven by capitalism, right? Capitalism is the single biggest tool to this mankind, right? Without capitalism, we don't have America. So. I am very driven. I'm passionate. I have a lot of strong opinions. But end of the day, America still works, right? You still get the stimulus checks. You still get that employment benefits sitting at home during COVID when nobody could get out, right? It still works compared to any other country. And that's why we are where we are. Doesn't mean it's not tough. Things are very difficult to achieve. But if you have that passion, you have that drive to make a difference, you will figure it out and no other better country to do it than America. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I, I still believe in America. I still believe in opportunity and, yeah. um, but you have to, you have to get up and take action. You know, you have to get up and actually get off the couch and you have to go out and meet people that can help you. Yeah. The, you know, look, you, I don't know you that well. I just, this is our first conversation, but you seem like a guy that is willing to help others. And I, I believe that, you know, a lot of, a lot of successful people are that way. And that if people would reach out to them, they want to help. They want to help the next guy, not necessarily write a check and just hand it to them, but like, Hey, you want advice? You know, here's what I would do. And, you know, and then but then you got to get up off the couch and actually go do it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's huge. Um, talk about how you guys source deals because you, it's, it's different, you know, when you get to your level to kind of move the needle. Yeah. Are you mainly all off market deals? Are you looking always at portfolio type deals? Yeah, majority of them. And I'll tell you, there's no secret sauce in how we find deals. I mean, look, everybody's chasing the same deals. But for us, it's just, you know, I have trusted group of brokers in, in the markets we're active in. And if they're showing me a deal, I take it seriously and I pursue them. Uh, it also gets dictated by what's in my portfolio. If it's close to another asset or is, if I'm trying to build in a certain market like Vegas, I, you know, I'm trying to build a portfolio. So I'd be more active there. It just it's a mix and it just comes down to relationships, right? And and brokers will bring you those deals because they know once you say yes, you're good to go and you're least painful to deal with. You don't retrade. I put up hard deposit day one. So these are the things you have to take the risk to get these off market deals, which a lot of people can't, right? I mean, this portfolio in Dallas had to put up two million non-refundable deposit day one, which a lot of people can't do that. 
And so these are some of the advantages we and, get. And I thank you, by the way, because I'm I'm an LP in one of those nine assets that are part of that deal. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. Awesome. So in terms of like you giving back and what's your viewpoint on social media? Like how involved do you get? I think it's a great tool for marketing. I think it's a great tool for marketing. You know, since I started in 13, 14, there was no, I mean, it was the source of marketing was physical flyers and a bus stop, right? Now nobody talks about the physical flyers. It's all about your presence on social media, your reviews, your ratings, your pictures. So I think if you use it for the right reasons, I think it can really play a major role. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, there's pieces of it that, that are, I don't know, they come across as, as, as a little fake and a little, um, yeah. you know, look at, look at me, you know, yeah. um, type. But what I've found by doing it is that all of a sudden I'm talking to somebody in Ohio or in Vegas that I wouldn't have been talking to, you know, had, had you not taken a chance and, and put a few things out there, you know, for people to see. So, yeah, there's going to be people that will judge you, you know, for doing it. Um, but then there's going to be other people and other relationships that will be built that wouldn't have otherwise been built. Absolutely. Talk about an instance where, you know, so I'm not a big proponent in like, I need to fail fast. Like I look, I would rather succeed than fail. Like there's all this, you know, quotes out there that say fail fast and fail. But, you know, look, there's challenges that happen and sometimes something works and it sometimes it doesn't and you have to pivot, you know? And so um, talk about a time where, you know, you maybe had to pivot and, and you learn something from it and uh, how, you know, how'd you move forward from there? Yeah, I think you're right. Failure is just not an option for me. Uh, I am just, ultra competitively driven and I just hate losing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that being said, there are plenty of scenarios where it doesn't work out the way you want it to work out. And then how do you pivot? How do you manage? Define you. And again, it comes back to structuring and being creative in different circumstances. I mean, I've had cases where lenders back out 48 hours before close. I've had equity back out. I mean, there's millions of stories I can say. I mean, on operational, there's there's problems every day. Some manager quit. There's staffing shortage at this property, or some deal fell out of contract, and there's a title issue. Or I mean, there's so many issues. There's lender related issues. That so you're constantly trying to satisfy so many different parties. So it's, I can't even tell you that I'm I haven't failed. I mean, I'm having to pivot literally every second of my life because my plan usually doesn't go to the way I want to go. So I'm pivoting literally every second, but doesn't mean I'm failing. I'm still right. succeeding. And, and if you give it a longer time horizon, you'll probably works out better for you, whatever. So I'm of a firm belief, whatever is happening is probably happening for the better. And you will see that later on. Right. At that time, it's hard to recognize it. But yes, there's moments when some, certain big decisions don't come your way feel down but then it's about how do you get back and solve that problem 
right? It's almost become a challenge. And till I not solve that problem, I will not move on. And I try to solve that problem really fast. It's, it's great perspective. Um, my business partner on my first syndication deal, Raj Gupta out of Chicago. I don't know if you've ever come across him. Um, you know, he told me when I got, I only got involved in the real estate market like three and a half years ago. And he said, Darren, what you're going to learn is that it's, it's all about problem solving. There's, there's always some new challenge that happens and you know, you, yeah. you know, you got to keep emotions out of it and, and learn how to, to problem solve. Um, but I love that fact that you said that, you know, failing is not an option for you. <laughs> like, and I, I remember being in a training program at one point and, the, and some girl saying, Hey Darren, man, what are you going to do if this doesn't work out? And I'm like, that's just such a bizarre question to me. Like, I, I don't look at it that way. It's like, I see these other guys being successful. But that's how 99% of people look at it, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm just looking at like, what do I have to do to be successful rather yeah. than what if it doesn't, you know, isn't successful. So um, I, I love that you said that. That's huge. Um, where do most of your, where does most of your equity come from? Is it, is it still high net worth individuals, um, yes. lim, limited partners and, yes. and where, where do those investors come from? Is it uh, word of mouth? It, to be honest, I don't know. I, I'm you, still, <laughs> to be honest, I don't know. <laughs> I started with six investors today. We have 1600. Holy cow. And I've never paid, I've never paid a single broker dealer or our middle guys to bring any equity for us. And I, you know, I get emails from, I ran into people in different events and, and occasions and, and I get emails from people sitting in like India and then some big shots of country heads of pain. And so I'm invested in these deals. I'm like, wow, how did they get connected to our platform? And I feel very fortunate and blessed. But again, it goes back to your track record, right? I think it's, it's you're only as good as your track record. And I'm blessed and I'm happy that I have great reputation and track record. And I hope to continue that because if you have that, that's all that matters and people will invest in you. The existing investors go and tell their brothers and sisters and mothers and colleagues and, and all of a sudden it just kind of snowballs. Um, that's, you know, I'm still shocked at like the first deal that you did 37 units, $1.3 million in 2013. You know, I mean, that's, it's just awesome. Awesome. I love success stories and you have, have taken it, but you know what you did too, is that you kept upping the ante And I'm not saying that you have to always, you know, get bigger units and, you know, always be growing at them. But yeah, you know, it's like what we were talking about before. If you don't keep raising the bar on whatever your next challenge is, you know, you're going to get bored. You know, you personally yeah. are going to get bored, you know? And yeah. Um, so how do you view success now? Cause you've had financial success. So what's kind of the way you look at success going forward? Uh, for me, it's about giving back making impact in people's lives, how I can improve their lives. So for me, the goal is touching 1 billion people's lives in a positive manner. 1 billion? That's correct. And how, how do you, how are you going to know whether you did that? I don't know. 
Well, we, I probably won't, but I'll get a sense of it if I'm making an impact. Uh, but many ways to do it, right? Some people join non-profits. My thing is earn a lot of money and then give back in the most efficient manner where it's needed the most. And it doesn't mean that you have to be rich to give. You have to give continuously, right? right? Some people think, let me make a million first and I'll give back whatever. It's like, no, you have to keep giving and then you'll get more. It's almost like a circle. You give a dollar, you're going to get $10 back. I firmly believe in that. So I keep giving and I keep getting blessed with more deals, more investors. That's a, that's a weird thing in, in life and not just, yeah. you know, not just give. It's like a lot of different things. Like, look, you want more energy? Go work out. Yeah. Like you, all of a sudden you have more energy. Like it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right. You sit on the couch and you feel like, blah, yeah. you go work out. And then all of a sudden you want to eat better food and, you know, you want more money, give money away. Yeah. And all of a sudden, somehow it comes back. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's crazy. Um, to make money, you have to invest money. Yeah. Uh, invest in people, invest in company, invest in assets, everything. So what about sacrifices? Any sacrifices along the way? Many. Personal life, obviously, you know, I have a seven-year-old son and wife, beautiful wife. So uh, time gets taken away from them and, you know, when you're in, you know, responsible for a portfolio this size, your kind of mind is always occupied, which you can't spare for little things that normal people can do. So, yeah, those are some of the sacrifices mm-hmm. that, that you have. So you're at a completely different level than I am, but that I fall in. I'm an entrepreneur and I fall into that where. Look, I'm I'm home, but sometimes my mind is. Journey, yes. it's thinking of how to solve whatever challenge I'm going through in my business or whatever. And so when you're running a company to your size, I have to imagine that's a challenge to kind of shut, try to shut that off when you're in, you know, with your family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, What about networking and like being a parts of different mastermind groups and, and different groups, like, um, do you still do that? And why? In fact, I never did that. And I, I, that was never part of any group. I was never part of any networking group. Uh, and I still don't, right. I mean, I'm happy to be a speaker and share my knowledge and whatever advice I can give, but I think it worked out better because I I didn't have to hear anybody else. I didn't have to hear the so-called experts or people with experience when I started the business, because they've always have their wisdom and your mind gets clouded by what you're hearing. So I think I stayed away from all of that. And I was fortunate that almost like an outsider, I came in and uh, started raising capital and doing deals. It worked out great for me. And I haven't changed that aspect. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Multifamily is the biggest asset class. And most of the listeners are either, you know, wanting to be investors in multifamily or they're syndicators looking to scale up. And, you know, but there are some new people in there. Why, you know, why do you like multifamily more than other real estate asset classes? Well, I didn't know any better where else to invest. So I just started buying multifamily because it's just easy to manage the scale. You can build very fast, like single family takes a long time to build up the scale. So we're fortunate that we actually have multifamily as an asset class, because if you really step back, Multifamily doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. Maybe Germany there is a bit, but there is no multifamily asset class because 
you all, you know, in Asia, it's all individual titles. So you sell the flats or the apartments, not rent the whole complex. Canada, you don't have anything. I mean, really, there is no concept of multifamily except America. That's crazy when you think about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's why I chose to, again, I came from a real estate, experience, you know, financial institution. So I had the, the, the experience in terms of underwriting and whatnot. But multifamily at that time seemed cheap, right? It's for paying 25000 30000 a unit in 14, 13. And, and you're like, how can you really go wrong with paying these prices, right? I mean, land is probably worth more. And that's why I got really aggressive so early on because I didn't think it would last that long, right? It was a short window of opportunity. And now you're seeing that play out. But paying 25 dollars $35, $40 a door was insane at those times, right? It's just so cheap. But again, there's, there were people that were thinking that I'm overpaying at that time. And That's funny that people thought you were overpaying at, at yes. 30, 30 a door. Yeah, because they're used to paying 15, 10, 20 a door. Yeah, that's, it's, it's funny. Um, when I got involved, yeah. it was like 80 a door. And I had some people that said, hey, Darren, man, I was buying at 30, 40 a door and I'm out. <laughs> like, this is too much. Yeah. And now it's like, what, 120 or more, you know I mean? It's like, it's. It's crazy. I don't know how far, much further it goes, but um, what, I guess what's your view on that in terms of Texas versus other major metropolitan markets? I believe I'm originally an East Coast guy from Connecticut, and I've been in Dallas for 11 years now. I am a believer that we're not going to be ever be on top of the coast, you know, um, in terms of right on top rent you know, residential values, you know, per unit values. But I think that that gap can continue to squeeze over time, you know, between the differential between, because it's still so much more affordable here than it is in in most major other metropolitan markets. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think, I think we have to uh, step back and, and really appreciate, you know, we live in a state where there's net migration population growth. There's uh, job growth. Uh, if you look at Texas as a whole, a lot of good things. But again, there's advantages to living around the coast. So I don't think we'll ever get there, like you right said. But it's just how much more juice is left. Comes back to your risk reward. Are we? We might be better off building new product versus paying one fifty a door for a Class C product, right? I mean, it's just all these. Who knows the answer, right? And and then make the best calculations in your mind, and and then go with. You just gotta have conviction in whatever you're doing. So you you brought up a good point. I mean, I've I've heard a lot of syndicators over the last two couple of years looking to trade up, you know, move from C assets to B plus A minus type assets. And then I've also been hearing people, you know, talk about, Hey, it's getting so expensive per unit. Maybe I should just build, you know? So what's your viewpoint on, you know, build versus existing? Yeah. You know, there's no right or wrong answer, right? You can build. It's a great time, but then you're, are you good at building some things or are you going to hire a GC who's going to sign on those completion loan guarantees. And it's a different ballgame. Then you're basically forecasting how the market will be two years later when you're leasing those apartments. So it's 
sacrificing cash flow versus upside at the end. So it just depends on your, your underwriting and what you're comfortable with. Awesome. Hey, uh, what do you like to do outside of work? I love sports. I'm what what kind sport. of sports? Every sport. I mean, you can, uh, I wasn't happy about the Astros getting and losing three games in a row to you guys. <laughs> uh, but I'm a big baseball guy. I love basketball, football, cricket. I grew up in India. I love cricket. I love working out. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, outdoor playing golf. So I like to do a lot of those things. Awesome. You like to play golf? I like to play golf. doesn't mean I'm good at it, but I like uh, to play golf. Well, hey, it's just a matter of getting out and having some fun, yeah. right? Having, right. A, having a few pops afterwards. Um, very good. Well, what's the next big stretch goal for you? I heard you say early on, and I, they're not my words, they're yours, $100 billion. Um, is that that 2025 100 billion 2025 100 billion wow we'll do another podcast if we get there <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome well i really appreciate you coming on um i think it's huge for people to hear that you know it cuz sometimes when you get to the level that you're at people just think that you just landed there you know <laughs> and and it's important for people to understand that look, you started just like a lot of other people start, you know? And so get out there and, and start taking action. And, and you, you, you may not get to his level, but Hey, if you get halfway there, you're still doing pretty darn good. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one till next week. Signing off. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. <laughs>